G'day everyone, great to see you. Uh, you see, there'll be an outline for your talk, uh, for my talk that you would have received as you came in, keep that open. Uh, it's great to see you guys who are here from other congregations for the P&G Convo Hour, it's going to be uh, really encouraging later on. Uh, but I, as you're um, flicking that open, I've got a plan here, well I'll put it under here so don't worry about that. But uh, I want to start off by asking you, have you, has anyone ever accused you of selective hearing? You ever been accused of you? You know that, you know that situ, sorry, yeah. You know, <laughs> you know that situation, I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but for some unknown reason, right, all sense of hearing that you have just disappears for a particular moment. Like, I, I don't know, it just seems to happen to you when you least expect it. Uh, I don't know if this is picture yourself in this situation, this has happened to me. Uh, you know, it's Saturday morning, and you've just finished mowing the lawn, okay? So you've got a picture of this. And uh, you finish mowing the lawn, you come inside, and on the television happens to be the cricket. It's fantastic, and you just sort of lie on the lounge, and your feet up, and you're just sort of watching the cricket. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the first over, your eyes are glued to the television. And, uh, and for some strange reason, right, well, unknown to you, during the ad break, uh, your wife calls out. And she says, uh, hun, there's another uh, sort of, you know, lot of washing that needs to go out in the line. Can you please give me a hand? Uh, and for some unknown reason, you, you, you don't hear any of it. It's just you lose your hearing. It's like physically your ears stop working. But magically, it's incredible. At the start of the second over of the cricket, your hearing appears again. You hear the cricket commentary again. And you hear, and just this cycle of selective hearing. Has this ever happened to you before? Right? Am I the only person that's happened? Yeah, apparently, right? Um, all sorts of people suffer from this selective hearing, and there's no known cure. So if you have someone who you know, there's really not much you can do about it. Um, I say to Lenore, it's because of my fierce powers of concentration. That it's because I'm... F- Does, do you think that's going to work for me? No, it doesn't really. But um, what I want us to think about tonight is actually, as we read this part of the Bible, is how do we hear the Word of God? Uh, because as Jesus tells these seven short parables that we're going to delve into in Matthew 13 over the next three weeks... I think Jesus says to us that it's not enough to simply hear the word of God. It's not enough to simply do that. Because really, what I think these parables are about, they're about when we hear, but we don't really hear. They're about those times when we see, but we don't really see. They're about those times when we sort of come into the Bible and we think we've heard what Jesus is saying, but we haven't really heard. Uh, and I, I'm going to pray, uh, and then we'll come to Matthew 13. So why don't I pray? Um, our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. And we pray, Father, that those who have ears to hear, uh, that you would help us, to, as Jesus sa- says, uh, to listen. And we pray this for his sake. Amen. Uh, you'll know as you read the Gospels, right? You know when you go through the Gospels and you realize that as Jesus preached and as he taught and as he did miracles that... All those people that heard Jesus in the, on the dusty streets of Palestine in the first century, they didn't always actually hear him. Right? They, they heard him, but they didn't really hear him. I mean, some of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, when he, did, when he taught and when he did miracles, they thought that um, he was doing it by the power of the devil. Uh, the, some of the crowds, they were just bewildered by him. They didn't know what to make of him. And yet some people... His disciples, they left everything. They left their homes, they left their families, they sold their possessions, and they gave up everything 
to follow Jesus. Now, do you often wonder, right, why the different reactions to Jesus? These people all heard and saw exactly the same things. And yet their reactions are poles apart. Why is that? Do you often wonder why that is? And do you ever wonder why now that it's exactly the same? Well, with those questions in mind, Jesus tells these seven intriguing little parables in Matthew 13. And you've got to know that when we come to this point in the Gospels, that at this point Jesus is massively popular. right? Crowds are flocking to come and see Jesus. He's selling out the shoreline of basically every area that he's going to. Uh, to get tickets to see Jesus was hard to come by. So much so that Jesus, in verse 2 of this passage, had to get in a boat. Why? Because there were so many people that he couldn't speak with them being able to hear him. So he gets in a boat, he goes out, he speaks back to the shore, and he starts by telling them a parable. So he says to probably thousands of people, he says this, the parable of the sower. He says, consider a sower who went out to sow. Now, that's not this type of sowing, right? <laughs> you know, with needle and thread. <laughs> I don't know, maybe you laugh, but I don't know anything about agriculture, right, or farming. So it's about when a farmer, you know, gets a seed and puts it in the ground. And so he explains this to them. But then he tells this parable to the crowds, but then he only explains it, did you notice, to his disciples. So have a look at verse 18. So he says, Consider the sower. And then verse 18, what does he say? He says, You then listen to the parable of the sower when anyone hears the word about the kingdom. And so the disciples at this point, his followers, they ask the obvious question that everyone else is asking. You see it there. Now have a look at verse 10. They ask this. They ask Jesus. Why do you speak to the crowds in parables? And their question is fair enough, right? I mean, Jesus isn't running some cryptic quiz show. This is not who wants to be a millionaire. Like, doesn't Jesus want people to understand what he's talking about? Um, but what does he mean by parables? I, I don't know. You finished this sentence. I don't know how you were taught what parables were. But sometimes when you're younger, people say this is what parable, parables are. Parables are earthly stories with a what? Heavenly meaning, right? And so what some people think parables are, what they are is they're simple stories because... Jesus taught complex stuff, and so what he needed to do is boil down his teaching to simple, understandable, agricultural stories so that people could understand it, and so more and more and more people could get what he was talking about. His teaching was complex, so he needed to tell simple stories. The thing is, that's not what the parables are. The parables need an explanation. They're not, they're not simple. And not only that, if when you read them, they're riddles, aren't they? They're proverbs. They're dark sayings they confront and they challenge you when if jesus was speaking to this crowd right now half the crowd believed it half the crowd thought it was rubbish the the parables divided people like this that's exactly what they did and so then we wonder and the disciples wondered why jesus do you teach like this why is he teaching stories to the crowds that need explanation and then he doesn't explain it to them he only explains it to his disciples. Why does he give an explanation to his followers, but not other people? What was Jesus hoping to achieve by doing this? I mean, most of us, when we're trying to teach, we try and make things as understandable as possible. And yet Jesus deliberately talks in riddles. Why is that? Have a look at verse 34, what he says of Matthew 13. 
Uh, Matthew says this. He says, Jesus told the crowd all these things in parables. And he would not speak anything to them without a parable. So why did he teach like this? Well, Jesus gives two answers to that question. And one of them is really hard to hear. Because Jesus' stories, his parables, they reveal the kingdom to some and they conceal the kingdom for others. They actually draw some people closer to him and they push some people further away. Uh, You see, that's the first thing that the parables do. The parables reveal more clearly to Jesus' followers what his kingdom is like. Isn't that true? Uh, Have a look at verse 11 with me. This is what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know. And then he says in verse 12, for whoever has knowledge about me, more will be given to him and he will have more than enough. So what Jesus is saying is, is that if you want to know me, I'll give you as as much information as you want, more than you'll possibly need to know. For those on the inside, those who followed Jesus, those who had ears to hear, he told parables and they revealed the truth about the kingdom. Uh, They made things clearer, uh, what it was like, when it would come, uh, who was the king of it, all of that. And as you read it, isn't that your experience? They're curious little stories, yeah? Now, I'll show you one that really I never got at first. Like, Come to verse 33. This is just a little parable he tells. Verse 33. He says, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until it spread through all of it. And I think, what? <laughs> How's the kingdom like that? So the kingdom of God is apparently like a little bit of yeast that you put in this huge bag of flour and you mix it all through. Is that patently obvious to you what that means? It's not patently obvious to me. I read it and go, Jesus, what are you talking about? What does this mean? And so often at the parables, when you're curious, they intrigue you. You want to find out more and you think about the rest that Jesus has taught and suddenly you start to fit them in with everything else that he said. And then finally, he gives you eyes to see and you think, wow, it's fantastic. Jesus uses parables to make things clear to his disciples. Those who have ears to hear, he says, listen. But on the other hand, there's another reason why Jesus taught in parables. And one that's a little bit harder for us to hear. And that is Jesus taught in parables to harden the people of Israel in their unbelief against the Messiah, right? In their sinful rejection of God. So that that would lead them to reject the Messiah and ultimately to crucify the Lord of life. That's, that's what they did. right? Jesus explains why he tells the parables. He, he quotes Isaiah chapter 6 that we didn't read before. But he's quoting Isaiah, the prophet who spoke 700 years before Jesus. This is why Jesus taught in parables. Um, have a look at verse 13. He explains. He says, This is why I speak to the crowds, to them in parables. Those seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. 
You see, it was not God's plan or purpose in the time of Isaiah to, to see some people turn and be healed. As much as it wasn't God's plan or purpose in the time of Jesus to see all people turn and be healed. So you, you and I have a basic fundamental assumption that God wants to save all people at all times and in all circumstances. Uh, we, we always assume that God sends a prophet, and when God sends a prophet, that means the salvation of all people, that they would all turn and be healed. And yet there are times in God's purposes when that isn't his plan. That's not his purpose. I mean, Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord in the temple, and he took up his role as the messenger of God to the people of God at this point. But his task was to preach a message that wouldn't bring salvation. Rather, Isaiah was the prophet of doom. He knew that he would go out and preach a message and the people wouldn't hear it. They would reject it. Sometimes prophets can be prophets bringing judgment, not salvation. For the prophet's words will be met with such sinful rejection of the hearts of people that their words will, con- will confirm the rejection of the people that already existed and will bring God's judgment upon them. That was Isaiah's role in his day, and that was Jesus' role at this moment amongst some people. You see, it wasn't expected that the people of Israel necessarily would warmly accept and embrace their Messiah when he was come. It was expected that they would treat Jesus exactly like they treated many of the prophets who had come along in the centuries and would reject him as they had rejected them. And in fulfillment of prophecy and according to God's plan, they would crucify him as a sign of their rejection of him. In fact, that crucifixion would bring about the salvation of mankind. But that's what God intended would happen. Because you think about it for a second. Did God lose control when Jesus died on a cross? And was it God's plan that Jesus would come and he would preach and teach and people would turn and be healed without Jesus going to his death and being crucified and being executed for our sins? No. Jesus died for the sins of the world at the hands of sinful men who'd hardened their hearts against God. It was his plan. It's what he expected to happen. And so when Jesus spoke prophecies and when he spoke particular words and when he spoke in parables, he spoke that way so that those whose hearts were already turned against him were already hardened, would be further hardened in their unbelief. And that's what the parables did. And finally, they would rise up and they would say, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Crucify him. The same crowds who flocked to hear him on the shores would shout, crucify him. And the parables they heard hardened their already hardened hearts. And God did that. Now, that's hard to hear, yeah? But it's really important to hear this clearly. When when the crowds rejected Jesus, that was the fulfillment of biblical prophecy and it was part of God's plan, but they willfully did it. The parables hardened the people's hearts, but they didn't want to have a bar of Jesus. That was their choice. And it's sad, isn't it? They had selective hearing, but it's a bit more serious than me laying on the lounge and not listening to Lenore on a Saturday morning. They had selective hearing when it came to the word of God. They deliberately, what what does Jesus say? They deliberately closed their eyes. And their hearts had become calloused. 
You know those of us who do manual labour? Well, not us, because I don't, right? But you know those people that, you know when you get a callus on your hand from doing something, anything manual? Is this true? Those of you who are... Come on, men, surely you... Some of you. Yes, good, Mitch. All right, good on you, mate. See, there, there, there. You get, yeah, I get mine from golf because um, the club sort of rubs with the wedding ring. But um, it's tough playing golf. It's some guys have got to do it, right? But um, apparently, you know, but you know your feet, you know when you get those calluses, yeah? Do you guys get calluses on your feet? You don't want to admit it? I don't, does anyone want to show it? No, you don't want to show it, do you? But you know that really hard skin, yeah? God's describing that that is what people's hearts were like. And so when they heard the parables... They hit hard hearts and they made them more calloused. They made them harder. Now, it's knowing that that we come back to the parable of the soils. And the reason why Jesus taught this is pretty obvious now at this point. Because really, the seed falls on four types of ground. And the obvious question that Jesus asks us in this, par- this passage is which soil are you? Are you the path? Are we the rocky ground, the thorny ground, or the good soil? Now, I don't know anything about farming, so much so that I didn't really understand how... So apparently plants grow better in good soil than they do on the path, but that's fairly obvious, right? I'll show you how bad a uh, farmer I am, right, or, or a person. So I, I, I thought recently that my office was looking a bit bland, and I needed a bit of, you know, something to make me feel better during the day as I'm sort of sitting there tapping away on the computer and writing emails, which I don't like to do. And, um, and I thought, maybe I'll... They say that you should have a plant in your office, right? Plants just, you know, just sort of make you feel better about life. And so I thought, right. So I asked Lenore, I said to her, I'm going to get a plant. And she said, oh, don't buy a real one. You'll kill it. She said, because you'll never water it and it'll just die and then you won't feel happy, you'll feel sad. So don't do that. So I went to Ikea and I got this. How good is this? Can you, t- you can't tell, but it, it's, it's fake, right? It's awesome. Right? So this sits in the corner. Look, it's really, it's not real. Look, see, there, there you go. And, and it's great because every day it looks fantastic. I don't need to look after it. I don't need to know anything about farming. And I still feel like, oh, I've got a plant. So there you go. But Jesus was speaking to a group of people who did know about farming. And so he asks us this question, which soil are you? And the reason why this parable is so confronting is how we react to the word of God, how we hear it, is a measure of where our heart is with God. It's as simple as that. And so which soil are you? Here's the first soil. Have a look at verse 4. He says, as he was sowing, the farmer, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came and ate them up. Then he explains in verse 19, he says, When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. Many that heard Jesus reacted to him this way. They didn't give him the time of day. They wouldn't have a bar of him. And that's exactly how some people react to Jesus today. Right? They never even give Jesus a hearing. You mention Jesus' name and they change the channel. They go, and they change the topic of conversation. They, they almost physically get ill with even the mention of his name. And, and you try and mention him at all, and they're like, nah. It's like the seed bouncing off the path won't give him even the time of day. It was the same then, 
It's the same now. Jesus says, well, there's actually a second type of soil. Uh, Have a look at verse 5. He says, some think is this you, maybe. Other seed fell on rocky ground where there wasn't much soil. And they sprang up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered. Jesus explains, look, verse 20. He says, and and the one sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but is short-lived. And when pressure or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he stumbles. That's so true, isn't it? You know, it's, it's so exciting when someone receives the gospel of Jesus with joy and they found their saviour and they believe in him and it's wonderful and they receive the gospel with joy, but sometimes there's no depth. There's no root. And so when any rejection comes, you know, someone has a snide remark saying, you're not Christian, are you? Or you have a difficult decision to make. Jesus says sometimes like a fair-weather friend. You know what a fair-weather friend is? You know the friend that's only there when there's good times? Jesus says sometimes people are like that with me. Once it gets tough, they're off. They stumble. Jesus says there's actually a third soil. And maybe this is you. And maybe this is a touch of all of us, actually. Um, You know that it's right. You know this is true, right? You know that Jesus is Lord. You know that it's all true. But the world, it's got you by the throat. Uh, Jesus says it in verse 22. Look what he says. He says, Now the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word about me, but the worries of this age and the seduction of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Right? Living in this age, it has its worries, right? And, I, and I've realised as I've got older, And I know that those of you who are older than me in this room will say, you're not that old, but I'm older than most of you. (laughs) That as you get older, right, the worries seem to... I always thought that as you got older, you get less worries. (laughs) You just seem to get built up and have more worries. They, They increase. But it's true that slowly by slowly by slowly, those worries of this age choke out the word of God. They do. And not only that, the seduction of wealth does exactly the same thing. And wealth does seduce us, doesn't it? You know, like the temptress or the tempter that you know you ought not have. Wealth is exactly the same thing. It seduces us. Because wealth always says, if only I had more money, if only I had a better paying job, if only I got that promotion, then life would be easier, life would be happier, I'd be more fulfilled if I just get that promotion, if I just get that raise. But of course that's not true, right? (laughs) The more possessions you've got, the more you've got to look after them. <laughs> I've realised this recently. Now, six months ago, we bought a new car. I thought that was going to be a fantastic decision. Right? But then when I've thought about it, like now every second Saturday, I've got to spend an hour and a half washing the thing that I never had to do before. And then I thought, it's only mildly more comfortable for the family to drive around in than the one we had before. And not only that, it cost a whole bucket load of money more than the one that we had before. And so I'm starting to think, was that really such... I think getting a new car has actually caused more anxiety than... But it's the seduction of wealth, right? I thought we needed it, and it's great that we've got it. But is it? I don't know. Because that's what wealth does, doesn't it? Those of you who don't have shares, don't wake up in the morning petrified to look at the paper. 
Those of you who do have shares, do. Wealth only causes more anxiety and it only gives us more opportunities to not serve God but to serve ourselves. I mean, there's always more money. There's always more stuff. There's always more experiences. There's always better clothes. There's always someone richer and prettier and happier than than you because of that. And so slowly by slowly by slowly, the seduction of wealth chokes the word out of our lives. It does. I've seen it. I'm just too busy these days to go to my small group during the week because, well, I got that super promotion and it's just, I just can't. And we we can't afford to, you know, I used to go to Beach Mission and take a week of my annual leave to do that, but I just, I don't know if I could afford to really do that anymore. And and I, there's just too much pressure in the morning to read my Bible and pray anymore. Slowly by slowly by slowly, the seduction of wealth and experiences can choke the word out of our lives. It can be the worries of this life, but it also can be the new opportunities that wealth gives to us. Apparently in the past, and we hate it when people say this, but you know that we're the richest, you know this, right? You know we're the richest generation in the most wealthy city in the world. Do you know that Sydney is the most wealthy city in all of the world and we are the richest generation within it? And we're in the inner suburbs of Sydney. So we're amongst the top, whatever, point, whatever, wealthiest people on the planet. So if there's any parable that Jesus is speaking to us, it's this. And you know that even 30, 40 years ago, people had nothing else to do on Sundays because they didn't have the mobility and the money that we have to do anything else than to come together and to meet as God's people around his word and in fellowship with his people. Right? Now, we're not even sure if we're going to be in the same country or the same city on a Sunday, let alone the same suburb or the same building to come together and to read God's word. Slowly by slowly, the seduction of wealth can choke the word out of our lives. It can. And that wasn't picking on anyone in particular. But I've noticed something, and so I wanted to say it. We have so much money. And we spend it on such trivial things. You just ask yourself the question. These increased experiences you have, have they caused you to read the word of God more than you used to or less than you used to? If it's less, then the seduction of wealth is choking the word out of your life. Now, like a good preacher, Jesus doesn't finish with just the hard stuff. He says, you know that there is the good soil, yeah? There is those who bear fruit a hundred times, 60 times, 30 times what is sown, right? Because, and this, this, is, this could be you, and I think it is many of you, right? Because you're not like the other soils. You're not like me sitting on the lounge with my selective hearing, not listening to the Lenore, right? You read the word of God and it soaks in. And you know that there are other people around who are opposed to the word of God. And you know that they persecute you and you don't, they give you a hard time about it. And you've got the same worries of this age as everyone else. Right? You've got to get through exams just like everyone else. You've got to get money to live and to buy a house or to rent just like everyone else. You've got to put your kids through school just like everyone else. But you're deeply rooted enough in Jesus 
that the snide comments from a mate won't hurt. And you're deeply rooted enough in Jesus that the cares of this world and the seduction of wealth don't rip you away from Jesus and you don't become unfruitful. You're the good soil. It's fantastic. You study and you work and you live for the kingdom. Your life is producing a crop. It's wonderful to see. And so Jesus confronts us with this little story, doesn't he? Which soil are you? You're the path? You're the rocky ground? Are we the thorny ground? Or are we the good soil that's producing a crop? Do you hear and not hear? Or do you see and really see? Jesus says, anyone who has ears to hear, I should listen. Why don't I pray? Let's pray. Um, Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the parables of Jesus. Father, we thank you for this one, which shows that the way that we receive your word points to how our heart is. Father, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters here. Father, I thank you for those who are receiving the word like good soil and it's producing a crop a hundred times, 60 times, 30 times. Uh, Father, I pray for those of us who are tempted by the thorns and thistles of this world. Father, I, I pray for those of us who the word is bouncing off hardened hearts. Father, please soften us that we might be fruitful again. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, on your...